Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 28th of March 2012. For newcomers, I always suggest you make use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and if you can struggle through uh, over a thousand audios for download, you'll really understand the system you're born into and you'll learn uh, that nothing happens on a big scale, a world scale, even a national scale by chance. There are big organizations that have been running the world for a long time and these organizations work outside governments. They have most of their members, in fact, a lot of their members in governments. They place them there. And they've been there for a 100 years, going towards what's often called a new world order. It's a new planned society, a world order across the whole planet. And uh, they're backed by the biggest uh, international moneylenders in the world, who started the whole thing up, of course. And they use universities and various other institutions and foundations to attain their goals. They can work in centuries, in fact. Remember, one foundation with maybe one or two uh, uh, directions to go in and two objectives to fulfill can go for 200 years and never change their aim, their sights. They never off their sight. They can keep pushing and pushing and ultimately get uh, what they want done in society. So remember, uh, nothing happens. In fact, your government really is almost a rubber stamp and a show for the public to believe in. That's what your government is reduced to today, basically. They rubber stamp the big uh, instructions that come down from the United Nations organizations, which the foundations work through. In fact, they own them. And uh, basically, that's how things are done in this world. So help yourself to the audios. And remember, you bring me to you, because I'm not backed by advertisers. I could be, certainly, and I'd be better off, too, if I did. But I'd also be kind of beholden to them as well. It kind of restricts your speech in some areas. So it's up to you if you want to keep me going. You can buy the books and just sit cutting through the matrix.com and you can donate as well. From the US to Canada, go into the website. You find out how to do it. You can still use a personal check to Canada from the States and you can also use an international postal money order uh, from your post office in the States as well. Uh, you can use send cash or you can use PayPal. Across the world, you've, you're stuck with Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. But as I say, what I do here is chronicle the events, go back to the past to show you the different organizations and foundations that were set up in the late, in the late 1800s, the beginning of the, uh, the, the, 19, the 20th century, actually, uh, and they've never ever stopped. Every prime minister, every president that's been in power since the late 1800s has been a member of an organization that ultimately was called the Council on Foreign Relations or the Royal Institute for International Affairs for Britain. They have these organizations across the whole planet, and uh, and you haven't been run by your own government. You haven't had your own government for an awful long time, and that's just a, a fact. And as I say, too, there's a big plan, too. So, and if you understand the past, where it all came from, and the foundations that were worked uh, or set up by these rich, powerful people, so-called philanthropists, 
you'll find that they've shaped the direction of the world for, for over a hundred years, well over a hundred years. And uh, that's in all fields too. Medicine, even down to euthanasia today, uh, specialized foundations have funded the whole movement and uh, put out their uh, massive writings on why we should do it over a century, for over a century. Same with integration of the continent of Europe and into one big system, and the same with uh, the North American agreements as well. Uh, that was all drafted up an awful long time ago, all these plans. So you're living through a script. If you understand the script, you'll know what's coming, and nothing at all will ever shock you. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix. I've talked quite a bit in the past about different characters who became famous through their positions in society. And of course the Huxley family is a, definitely a very interesting family. Julian Huxley, who became the first CEO of UNESCO, the United Nations, uh, basically wrote an awful lot about uh, bringing down the world's population, especially of the, of the ones uh, that the they deemed unfit, in other words. So there was too many of, they claimed, too many of the wrong kinds, you see. And it's never changed eugenics, never ever changed its, its goal. And uh, it has slowed down a bit from World War II that they changed a lot during that time because after what they found out the Nazis were doing, uh, they couldn't very well carry on in the same vein. But they actually did. They changed their names, went underground for a bit, but kept working in the foundations towards the same goal. A system where eventually only the better types, you know, the better types eugenically uh, and with right IQs will be allowed to survive, that kind of thing. And it's very, very much at the, the top of the tree with all the goals. When you really understand all the different goals coming through the United Nations, you can link that one part together with them all. They all want this perfect society. And they're talking, of course, about the public as being economic units in this big, big society, this great society, they call it. And ultimately, you'll all be being, paying your carbon taxes and everything else because you're the source, supposedly, of all the problem. They're already penalizing, uh, or talking about penalizing people in Australia if they'd have more than two children. Because, you see, China is set up to be the model for the world with its one child per, per family policy. But it all ties together. You understand this big web that's out there and that literally encompasses the entire planet and of foundations with all their goals. And as I said at the beginning, they can take 100 years, 200 years uh, getting their, their, their propaganda out and then legitimizing themselves by big grants to, to universities and get departments inside universities working for them for sometimes 100 years or more. That's how you change the world. You don't change the world by yelling and screaming at everything that comes along the pike, especially if you don't have the cash to put it into practice, what you're opposing or whatever. You've got to have big, big money. And these foundations are tax-free, exempt. And, of course, the big boys who created them uh, already ran countries because they owned the countries financially, by the way. They were the international bankers. But he got into what's happening recently, or at least been given propaganda recently, 
uh, uh, it's to do with euthanasia. And, of course, they started, of course, with abortion. That was the first part. They said this a 100 years ago. If we can get abortion approved, then that uh, further weakens man on the tree of life, basically, they called it at that time. Eventually, uh, Julian Huxley said we can knock man off his pedestal as being the, the, the prime ultimate creature on the planet and reduce him to the level of the animals. Once they train you through a generation or two that that's the way it is, you're just another animal, and that's what you're going to get in regular media, even in entertainment. You get that over and over again, that, those kind of statements. Um, then you're training you to accept the next part, which is uh, euthanasia of the elderly. And, and now it's coming in. You see that there's the saying they're so broke. Every country is just so broke they can't take care of the elderly. Now, these are the same governments that were pushed by the same foundations to, to make sure that both male and female went out to work. Uh, before that, people took care of their own elderly. That's, you didn't need all these homes. You didn't have them. In fact, the, the homes throughout the USA, especially, were funded by the mafia. They were the first ones to bring in old-age homes. That was the way they laundered their cash through. But, of course, they had uh, ties with some of these foundations as well. So you start at the young, then you go for the elderly, and then you can go down into the, the middle part, basically. Those who aren't just quite up to, up to snuff, basically, as good citizens, the perfect citizens. But the whole thing is to make you believe that you're unworthy in some form or another. And, of course, the other part, which they've been hammering, the same foundations under other guises had been existing before the 20th century, uh, they were hammering at the churches to destroy that because that gave man, uh, even, even the poorest of people, uh, the right to believe that, that they had, they were higher than the animals and you couldn't treat them as an animal. That's gone out the window today. Uh, Society is pretty brutish. We can see that by the recruits now they get into the military who want to go off and kill folk, just like video games. Uh, across the world they're like this and we treat each other in kind of nasty ways. Uh, that's not really human at all. So many wars went on prior to, to getting down to euthanasia, and now they're at the, the stage where they announced it openly in Australia and Britain and the British Commonwealth countries in general at the same time. Not surprising, is it? Because that's the old British Empire, and it's still part of the Commonwealth, whether you like it or not. So it's coordinated, and they have coordinated attacks in the media. And it seems to overwhelm the average Joe who doesn't think too much. That's true. There's a lot of folk don't think very much at all. And they say, well, I guess it's the right thing because Australia's doing it and Britain's doing it and so-and-so's doing it at the same time. It must be very important. And that's how they go along with things, you see. So here's a little history to the eugenics uh, society and to do with uh, dying for the elderly. As I say, it was essential to get us dehumanized by first going into mass abortion and approving that. And then, then of course, you dehumanize, we dehumanize ourselves by, by allowing that to happen. And because life is cheaper now. Life doesn't have the same sacredness it had before. But here's some of the history. In 1931, Dr. Charles Killick Millard, Medical Officer of Health for Leicester, gave a presidential address to the Society of Medical Officers of Health on voluntary euthanasia. This is 1931. His speech was printed in pamphlets form with an introduction by Sir William Arthur Butnot uh, Lane, his name was. 
Mr. Uh, Millard advocated the passing of an Act of Parliament to legalise euthanasia on a voluntary basis for the terminally ill and included the draft of a bill with his paper. But by the way, they also had to go further. First, you get this, the public to accept one thing. Well, I can see the point sometimes, you know, but they actually wanted to go a lot further because we're all economic units. And you see, we unfortunately take taxpayers' money that the governments really want for other purposes like wars and things. And, and, um, or having big meetings with the 20 course, course dinners and stuff like that. So they want the money from you, they put on you to treat you in hospital and just euthanize you instead. It's a lot cheaper. And it says here, um, and included the draft of a bill with this paper. In 1935, the Voluntary Euthanasia Legislation Society was founded in Leicester with C.J. Bond as chairman, uh, Charles Killick Millard as honorary secretary, and Lord Moynihan as president, and in 1936, the first voluntary euthanasia legislation bill was introduced into Parliament in Britain. In 1941, the membership of the society was over a thousand, but the activities of the society were curtailed by the war, World War II. Also to the contract, the bad name given to euthanasia by Hitler's policies, the society found it necessary to issue a statement pointing out that they only advocated euthanasia on a strictly voluntary basis for the already dying. So they kind of backpedaled a wee bit. In 1949, the society petitioned to the United Nations to include the right to voluntary euthanasia in the Declaration of Human Rights. Do you don't, do you, I hope you all know that you're under the Declaration of Human Rights from the, from the United Nations. If you, if you've read it, you should read it. You gotta read it. Anyway, it says the society became known as Exit but reverted to the Voluntary Euthanasia Society and continued to campaign for the right of individuals to a death with dignity and to propagate this, this controversial subject. In 2006, society changed its name to Dignity and Dying. And I'll put uh, some of this stuff up tonight for those who want to go through it. And, and most folk won't go through it because, they, well, you know, I'm still, you know, 30s and whatever, and I'm okay. I'm okay, Jack. So that's how you all think until it's your turn. But it's going to come down to the stage two, and it's already been discussed. Uh, well, we can't afford to treat uh, people the same way we used to treat in hospitals, including the younger folk, you see. Because they're, they're, they're putting you all, all of us, into uh, brackets of age group uh, and importance to society. You're going to get graded into your importance to your community and society. Versus how much it's going to cost to treat you for whatever's wrong with you. So it's, life has become cheap and eventually will become like China, uh, very cheap indeed. It's not very well entertained. Most folk won't miss, but won't, won't notice. And um, they won't miss their friends disappearing around them. Now, you see, you cannot introduce into the hands of government a tool and a power to do with killing people off. Governments are awfully good at getting folk killed, if you know, by all the wars. And... They have social policies and different policies on the go and political policies and agendas. So to hand them this kind of tool to start killing people off is an incredibly, incredibly dangerous thing. They've already slashed national health services to the bone because they want everything to be cost-effective, as I say. And for the general population, they, they really are angry now, but the kind of money they have to spend or give back from the taxpayer to treat the taxpayer. They want it all. Mind you, if it's some high hootspur who gets sick, some lord, whoever, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll spare no expense to, to make them better. But not for you. 
This is a reality that's come. If you're in your hospitals in Britain and elsewhere and look at their, their charts, you'll find who to resuscitate and who not to resuscitate. That's your class and status in society, for those that don't know. But it's all run by big, incredibly big foundations. And, of course, this this one here, this voluntary youth needs a society, now digging to it with dying, as it's called now, is part of the Wellcome Trust. And you've got to go into the history of the Wellcome Trust and the, the, the multi-million, it was 11.4 million pounds they started it off with back in the 20s, 1920s. But it's now worth trillions of dollars. And they're heavily involved in social policy and medicine across the world. That's how you run the world. You don't vote people in, folks. You put them in if you've got the cash. Back with more after this break. I'm back, cutting through the matrix, and I should remember too, before I forget, that the Wellcome Trust, as they call it, that pushes for all this stuff, has got fingers in every pie to do with medicine and and so on in euthanasia. Uh, They were a big pharmaceutical company at one time, and they merged with uh, uh, Burroughs, I think it was called, and then became part of the the, one of the the GlaxoSmithKline company, and then they, they dropped out. So they've got big stakes, you see, for everything that they do, financially too. Another article, too, is about to pay TV piracy hits the news. And like everything else in the world, uh, people get off with, uh, well, pretty well murder, in fact. Uh, if you're the right kind of people to get off with it, you have the status and, and power in society. And we've all heard about Rupert Murdoch and, and his dealings, but only a little bit, you know, a very little bit of what he was up to. Because Murdoch was involved with Israeli intelligence, and with other groups too, uh, to, to make sure that they got, they got basically a, a foothold over all communication and media to lead all media down the thoughts we're supposed to have and get led down because our thoughts are given to us via the media. Most folk believe everything they read. Most people really do. But this article here says um, there was a TV piracy war going on for pay TV. And it says... Um, a secret unit within Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation promoted a wave of high-tech piracy in Australia that damaged Ostar, Optus and Foxtel at a time when news was moving to take control of the Australian pay TV industry. The piracy cost the Australian pay TV companies up to $50 million a year and helped cripple the finances of Ostar, which Foxtel is now in the process of acquiring. A four-year investigation by the Australian Financial Review has revealed a global trail of corporate dirty tricks directed against competitors by a secretive group of former policemen and intelligence officers within News Corps known as Operational Security. Their actions devastated news competitors and resulting waves of high-tech piracy-assisted news, news and capital company, to bid for pay TV business at reduced prices, including direct TV in the U.S., Telepui in Italy and Ostar. These targets each had other commercial weaknesses quite apart from piracy. 
They're showing competition and consumer commission is still deliberating on final details before approving Foxtel's $1.9 billion takeover bid for Oster, which will cement Foxtel's position as a dominant pay TV provider in Australia or provider in Australia. News Corps has categorically denied any involvement in promoting piracy and points to a string of court actions by competitors making similar claims from which it has emerged victorious. In the only case that went to court in 2008, the plaintiff Echostar was ordered to pay nearly $19 million in legal costs. And it says AFR editor-in-chief uh, Michael Sturchbury said AFR fully stands by Neil Chenoweth's extraordinary report of pay TV piracy involving News Corps' subsidiary NDS. It says anyone who reads uh, Chenoweth's extraordinary report will be struck by the complexity and murkiness of the relationships, actions and motives involved in the NDS story. And the AFR welcomes any further independent investigation of the serious matter he has brought to light. And it says this issue is particularly sensitive because operational security, this Murdoch team, which is headed by Rovan Hassak, a former deputy director of the Israeli Domestic Secret Service, Shin Bet, operates in an area which historically has had close supervision by the office of the chairman, Rupert Murdoch. Well, Rupert Murdoch's got many awards from Israel because of his mother and inherited his, and who her mother, his mother is. The security group was initially set up in a News Corps subsidiary news datacom systems, later known as NDS, to battle internal fraud and to target piracy against its own pay TV companies. But documents uncovered by the Financial Review reveal that NDS encouraged and facilitated piracy by hackers, not only of its competitors, but also of companies such as Foxtel, for whom NDS provided pay TV smart cards. The documents show NDS sabotaged business rivals, fabricated legal actions, and obtained telephone records illegally. And it gives you quite an insight into this massive empire that Mr. Murdoch was sent out to create, of course. And um, it says that emails support claims by BBC Panorama uh, program aired in the UK on March 26 that news sought to derail on digital, a UK pay TV rival to news B Sky B. The collapse with losses of more than 1 billion in 2002 after it was hit by massive piracy, which added to its other commercial woes. So it seems that this uh, internet, this group of intelligentsia, you might say, uh, and definitely in intelligence services were hacking other, other competitors, um, news, etc., and put them out of business. But it goes on to talk about uh, covert operations in Australia were directed by the head of operational security for Asia Pacific, Avigail Gutman. At the time, Gutman was based in Taiwan, where her husband, Yuri Gutman, was the Israeli consul before she was promoted to be a group leader based in Jerusalem. Totally interwoven, you see, with Murdoch. So uh, I'll put this up tonight for those who want to wade their way through it. And um, But it just shows you how, at that level, this is a typical uh, intelligence tricks at the top, because you understand, uh, he who controls your mind controls you. It's quite simple, isn't it? And that's why they make column media barons. And you have different countries putting out their own ones and uh, for their own particular designs. Now, the, 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 the Pacific Rim region is a, a big, uh, important part of the future strategy for, for global order, etc., and lots of cash. Then there's just no holds barred at all. Back with more after this break. The 
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix and talking about the the power that these media moguls have and their connections into a lot of the things that they, that they dishonor by the misinformation they put out because they're, they're heavily involved in business and countries' businesses and sometimes it's ambiguous as to what country they actually serve. But uh, this article here is from 2011 and it goes on to talk about some the various things that Murdoch was up to with his media empire. His current revelations focus on Murdoch's news of the world, hacking into the Dowler family's voice messages during the kidnapping of the Trevor daughter and so on. But it says, a 2010 exposure of Murdoch's Times of London revealed that it published forged documents. It, it did reveal, reveal that with inquiry. They published forged documents purporting to show that Iran planned to do nuclear experiments for an atomic weapon. And as Collins pointed out, it was Murdoch's drumbeat of misinformation that helped mislead people into believing that Saddam Hussein was involved in the 9-11 attack, supporting Bush's invasion of Iraq, though intelligence was unsubstantiated and contradicted or even non-existent, according to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And you understand how these guys can, can drum up support for anything that they want, complete fictions if they want, and they do it. And they work again with, with uh, people like Tony Blair and um, things like that. We've also got his instructions from other people, but not from the people of Britain. But anyway, it says, but what's not yet been uh, covered as the, as the media circus uh, Murdoch's London Times created internationally as it fabricated lies against the respected uh, British doctor with consequences that could impact the lives of billions of children in the world. And it says the London Times headlines read, and that's one of the Murdoch group, Callous, unethical, and dishonest, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Uh, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, scared Dr. Andrew Wakefield makes fortune in the U.S. All nonsense. Andrew Wakefield and MMR, the investigation by Brian Deere. And again, London Times, MMR, Dr. Andrew Wakefield abused his position of trust. And it says, Andrew Wakefield was a respected British gastroenterologist who began research into digestive problems in autism or autistic children in collaboration with other doctors in the U.K., after being called by parents to see, uh, who sought help. His work indicated severe digestive issues, and he asked for more investigation of the measles, mumps, and rubella, rubella vaccine. Brian Deere is a reporter who savaged Dr. Wakefield from the pages of the Sunday Times, a paper managed by Rupert Murdoch's son, James Murdoch, who was on the board of, guess who, GlaxoSmithKline, which makes the MMR vaccine. Deere researched his case with the help of Medical Legal Investigations, a private inquiry company whose only source of funding is the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry. Deere was both a journalist writing on Wakefield and the person who brought the, a case of fitness to, of practice medicine to the General Medical Council and then wrote about the proceedings as well. Parents of these children were treated by Wakefield, uh, of children who were treated by, were denied the right to be heard before a real court on claims against the vaccine manufacturers. The High Court judge who denied them was Sir Nigel Davis, the High Court judge, right? That's who got appointed to try this. Whose brother is on, is an executive board member of Elsevier, publishers of The Lancet, his big medical journal, which removed Wakefield's 1990 paper on the subject, and is, and is also on the board of GlaxoSmithKline. See how everything gets rigged in society? 
Everything gets rigged. <laughs> Absolutely everything. With the London Times giving Brian Deere free reign to attack Wakefield, media closed in like sharks. Coincidentally, the head of Reuters, by the way, the head of Reuters, where you get most of your news from, they set the pace for the world's news because it's owned by Rothschild. What they want you to believe is going to be what you will believe. So the head of Reuters serves on the board of Merck and as well, and Miriam Stoppard, who writes at the Daily Mirror newspaper, is married to Sir Christopher Hogg, who was chairman of GlaxoSmithKline in 2004. Dr. Kumar, the chairman of the GMC Fitness to Practice panel, who ruled against Dr. Andrew Wakefield, would not answer questions about his shareholdings in GlaxoSmithKline and said there was no such thing as vaccine damage and that any parents who claimed that their children had suffered such would be treated with scorn and contempt. So Wakefield lost his license to practice and then left the UK. What had he done that Murdoch's machine went into action, creating fictions around him, getting his work pulled from the Lancet and getting him brought before the GMC to ultimately lose his license? Wakefield suggested that until, until further studies, the measles vaccine should be given as a separate vaccine rather than in combination as the MMR measles mumps rubella. He did not suggest that children not take a measles vaccine, only that there be caution until the MMR was investigated further. This reasonable suggestion was met immediately by the single measles vaccines being taken off the market. His work, Wakefield's work with Professor Walker Smith and Professor Simon Murch had touched a nerve, a, a, a financial nerve at that. The pharmaceutical industry, an industry that makes six times more than any industry in Wall Street, is heavily invested in vaccines. In the U.S., the companies do not have to prove efficacy to get FDA approval. They don't have to prove it works at all. And it's moving on every front to have their product mandated. Well, anyway, I think think, uh, in recent months or whatever, Wakefield's got more power back. Uh, I don't know if he was reinstated, but he was right. And subsequent tests have been done. They have found these synthetic viruses that they put in these shots in the brains of dead children post-mortem and they've also found them in the guts and intestines of them as well so you would not believe the real world that you live in, you really wouldn't mind you all I've said here will go out your head as soon as you watch Oprah or somebody comes on with a white coat and, and talks in a nice predetermined way and rehearse way about the next thing that's coming down the pike in medicine. You'll just go back into la-la land, and you're conditioned that way, you see, already. So, pretty tough. Now, International Women's Day. Uh, it says, women reclaim their stewardship of life, reject GMOs and GMO vaccines. It says, by Sylvia Gonzalez and Esther Rhodes. It says, women and children's bodies are the very source of the world's future, yet women and children's bodies are the heart of the corporate assault. This is the reality women face on this year's International Women's Day. During World War II, IG Farben, the pharmaceutical and chemical giant of the day, experimented on women prisoners at Auschwitz, attempting to develop a vaccine that could covertly sterilize people at routine doctor's appointments. It says, is this a women's issue? And it says today that the University of Georgia Research Foundation, another foundation, the University of Georgia Research Foundation, controlled by Pharma, holds a patent entitled a fertility-impairing vaccine. It's the same one as the Germans use. The patent refers to polysorbate 80 as the preferred ingredient. 
It says polysorbate 80 is the H1N1 vaccine which people avoided because it was untested. The CDC put pregnant women first in line for the vaccine, a vaccine containing 250 times more mercury than EPA deems safe. A vaccine to allegedly protect against the pandemic, but the CDC invented the pandemic with data, which is as much as 98% false. Now it will not publish the real data it holds showing that uh, thousands of women uh, aborted immediately, over a thousand women uh, aborted immediately after taking the H1N1 vaccine, often far into normal pregnancies. The H1N1 is now hidden inside the flu vaccine. Henry Kissinger, responsible for the murder of Salvador Allende and the subsequent Chilean coup for slaughter in Cambodia, a man considered an international war criminal, wants a 50% reduction in the world's population. He wrote a report to the U.S. government recommending using vaccines to covertly sterilize populations. Are you still following the thread here? And it says Ted Turner had wanted a 95% reduction in world population, but generously altered that to only 70%, getting rid of billions by preventing their birth. Women do not need more than to see the, the pharma patient or patent and know that its preferred ingredients is in the flu vaccine. And every single one of these mandated vaccines for children to have certainty that pharma now threatens the fertility of human beings with vaccines. The long series of mandated vaccines for children means they face an entire childhood and adolescence being hit again and again with a sought-after sterilizing agent. And I'll put this link up tonight for those who... Because it's longer. It's much, much longer. It's quite long, in fact. But you should read all through it because... And it's not for those who believe in la-la land of the television where they're all happy and everything. This is for people who are really serious, who've broken out already of at least some level of the matrix and they realize what's really, really going on. And it's the same with men, too, uh, that they're, they're pretty well sterile but before they're 30. In their early 20s now, they're finding them sterile. And what they do produce, sperm-wise, is dysfunctional. It can't find a target. The, the, the sperm itself, each spermatozoon is, is malformed. And, and this should be a, a medical emergency, but nobody is calling it that. Why are they not calling it that? Because, you see, it was planned that way. You're meant to go infertile because what's been done with you uh, when you were young. And in Australia, they're, they're getting the police, of course, to push this one in Australia, but uh, they're talking about a national DNA database. So the police want it, you see. And I guess uh, that's all you need in Australia. Maybe maybe just need the police to demand it and they get what they want. I don't know. I'll put that link up too. And Another link I'll put up too, it's quite a good one actually, uh, because the smart meters they're putting up in Australia have been going on fire and, and burning houses down. And there's actually a video of one going, and, and my God, it's really going too. It's really going good guns. Now, this big push for sustainability, and this is the time that we're going to see lots, and I've said this a few months ago, you'll see lots and lots of articles come out now, and probably one a day, at least, at least one a day to do with sustainability in one form or another. They have different names for it all to confuse you, but it's a, a real assault on your mind to get you ready for Rio Plus 20, which is the Air Summit, of course, for sustainability. Uh, that includes depopulation as well and all that kind of stuff. But it's also to do with uh, starting with corporations putting on carbon taxes and, and that kind of thing, or cutting their power, getting fined, 
to get you used to that. And that will carry on for a couple of years. And once you're all used to it, then you get personal taxes on what you produce per day. That's the real intention of it. We're trained like animals, step by step, you see. And I put an article up. It says, the Obama administration proposed on Tuesday the first rules to cut carbon dioxide emissions from U.S. power plants, a move hotly contested by Republicans in industry in an election year. So it would effectively stop the building of most new coal-fired plants in an industry that's moving rapidly to more natural gas. But the rules will not regulate existing power plants, a source of one-third of U.S. emissions, and will not apply to any plants that start construction over the next 12 months. Uh, since the watering down of the proposal led some ardent environmentalists, it's almost like it's a religious group, isn't it? What's, what's an environmentalist? Is it like a hobby or something or, or a fanaticism? What is it? You know, are you a flat earther? Or, I mean, an environmentalist, like no one else cares about the environment. You see, they, they're holier than now, you understand. They, they raise themselves up to be holier than now. They're the guardians of the world. Well, who, who, who is self-appointed guardians? I don't think so. They're all well-funded groups, non-governmental organizations, paid big bucks by the foundations that run the planet. And they get massive pension plans and everything. These aren't tin cup collectors under door-to-door for a charity. This is how the world is shaped, the army of, of, of NGOs. But the power company that has taken steps to cut emissions praised the rules. Anyway, so anyway that's what they're saying. Is that now they're, they're going to clean up the air and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and yada, 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 yada. Just to get you all used to it. Most stuff, you understand, is just a, a part of the way towards the big, big agenda. And they dish it out in bits and pieces to you. And this little article is quite funny here too. It's funny, but probably true, because it says a part of the fortune of the Queen of England comes from drug trafficking. And there was two versions of this. One was put out in Yahoo as a counter to try to make it all a fun, happy, happy, nonsensical thing and a conspiracy theory. And then this is an article here. It says, uh, um, it was by Jacques Cheminade, the candidate for the 2012 French presidential election. It says, Britain's financial regulator has fined the British Queen's Bank for money laundering failures, as a French presidential candidate has said. Part of the Queen's fortune comes from, from drug trafficking. But it's true the British financial regulator has fined the British Queen's personal bank for money laundering failures. And as this presidential candidate is running at the same time, mentioning he mentioned that the, a lot of her fortune comes from drug trafficking. The Financial Services Authority, the FSA, has fined the British Queen's bank, Coots Bank, she used to be with Bearings, until that got in, into some bother with false accounting too and false shares and things. So Coots Bank, £8.75 million for failing. That's what they were fined. Can you imagine the kind of money that goes through it? For failing to carry out correct checks on politically exposed persons and preventing money laundering. So they were doing both, you see, like most banks. The failings at Coots was serious, systemic, and were allowed to persist for almost three years. They resulted in the unacceptable risks of Coots handing or handling the proceeds of crime. Their face a statement proposed on its website. The news comes less than a week after a fringe candidate for April's French presidential election said the British Queen owed her fortune to drug money laundered by, he said, Jewish bankers in the city, he actually said. And, um, and it says here, uh, on 21st of March, Jacques Chimenade, 
an independent presidential candidate running for the French election said, apart to the, the, if it comes from drug trafficking, he says, no, not any property. There are several other sources, but it's a series of trafficking in which, yes, there is trafficking drugs. Well, there's always been trafficking drugs. If you read George Orwell or, or Blair, his real name was Blair, he came from a family of bureaucrats uh, that served the Queen and... Um, some, like Obama said in his speech lately too, he served the Queen faithful loyal servant. But anyway, um, you find that the Orwell's dad was the chief uh, opium overseer, basically, overseer for the opium crops in Burma at that time, and in different countries. And um, he admits that in his book. But even before he wrote his book, I think it was in 19, maybe 29, I can't remember, I remember reading it years ago, but uh, I think it was a, a, an MP called Thompson stood up about 1929 in Parliament in Britain because he got wind that the British Opium Company was still going. They thought it was all disman- dismantled in the previous century. But apparently it was still a crown corporation and it was only members of the royal family and their cousins who had shares in this uh, this massive organization. And nobody knew at that time that the British Army were still guarding all these. This is what we're doing today in in Afghanistan, where our armies are all guarding the, the poppy field, same thing goes on. But anyway, he, it came out then that, uh, yeah, Britain still had, or the Crown still had um, their own uh, poppy fields and so on. So nothing's really changed. It's just that we've been warped to think everything's... We've been warped. You see, the warp our brains to make us think everything's on the up and up nowadays, isn't it? How much do you know about the Queen or income? Nobody knows really anything about it, even, even what's declared, because she's got holdings all across the whole planet. She doesn't have to declare it. Like Rothschilds and central bankers don't have to declare it. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix and we'll go to Daniel from the UK if he's still hanging on there. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, hello, Alan. Um, I just wanted to ask you one thing. Uh, well, there's a few things, but just one question. I downloaded this um, self-defense manual. It was a military self-defense manual Yeah. off the internet. I was looking at it, and there's a sec- it's a bit gruesome. There's a section here on how to remove a sentry. Teaches you know, pretty gruesome stuff, killing this. But there's a reference here to a sixth sense. And um, if you let me read a few lines, maybe you could answer um, my questions to um, what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, is that all right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, it says, when approaching the sentry, the soldier synchronizes his steps and movement with the enemies, uh, masking any sounds. He also uses background noises to mask his sounds. He can even follow the sentry through locked doors this way. He is always ready to strike immediately if he is discovered. He focuses his attention on the sentry's head. Since that is where the sentry generates all of his movement and attention. However, it is important not to stare at the enemy because he may sense the stalker's presence through a sixth sense. He focuses on the sentry's movement with his peripheral vision. End quote. Now, if I had read this in anything else, I might have dismissed it, but this is an official military manual and there's a reference here to a sixth sense. Now, do you know what that, what that is? Well, we all have it, uh, basically, this to do with each other, that is. when You know when someone's staring at you, uh, it's, it's not so much staring, they're concentrating on you. It's a concentration you pick up on. 
and um, and that's why they're told to to try and see a target through the peripheral vision, so that you you're just on them, but to the side of them technically. But I know in the military they do teach these techniques, and um, and it's it's got to be done very quickly too, very quickly before they pick up on the fact that there's someone either stalking them or, or catching on at someone behind them or wherever. So there's a, a, a definitely a sixth sense. We, we sense it. But there's other factors come into it too. You're surprising, surprising. Uh, it's probably background noise there. Surprising how the, the little sounds a human being makes that are almost uh, imperceptible. When you're in a heightened state of alert, you will pick up on them. Even your feet on blades of grass, you know, even if you're walking fairly softly, you pick up so many different things. They also refer to that as a sixth sense. It's really the hyperacuity of your hearing. Etc. Or you might even hear the person breathing. You know. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's, with regards to a sixth sense, do you think there is something like? Sometimes you think when animals can almost sense when a hunter is trying to kill them, that sort yeah. of thing. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is, but it, there, there's something there that uh, uh-huh. I don't know. Something else going on. That's what. I'm oh yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it even uh, uh, with cattle before before they're going to be taken off the next day. For slaughter, the cattle will moo all night, so make one heck of a din. And why it happens, I don't know, but they all seem to sense uh, what's going on. Uh, that's, maybe it's the, the, the change in behavior of the farmers around them. They're picking up on something, and they just know they make them very uneasy. But there is a sixth sense, unfortunately, I think is, is missing today in a lot of people because we're trained. You wouldn't believe on how many levels. We are trained not to listen to ourselves, not not to listen to our abstract thinking and let it go to where it wants to go. We're trained into thinking in very narrow uh, corridors. And, and and that's the intention of control as well, of course, is to do away with that ability to, to sense something coming up, something to your detriment that you should be aware of. Um, we're tricked in so many ways. It's simply going to a doctor or lining up for the flu shot. You know, you, your, your sense is there's something wrong here, especially when they can't tell you if it even works. Uh, and uh, never mind what's in it. But um, the training you get overcomes your, 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 your common sense or your sixth sense as well. So, so you're quite right. There's a sixth sense. We should use it more. When you suspect something, go with your suspicion. That's what you should be doing. But thanks for calling from Hamish, myself, from Ontario, Canada. It's good night to me. Your God or your God, go with you.